If you brought your Bibles today, go ahead and turn with me to James chapter 1. We're going to uh, continue the series that we started last week as we look at how God grows us and the different ways that God grows us may be different than you would think. Uh, sometimes we would wish that God would just kind of grow us through the good times of life, but so many times it's in those difficulties that God does his best work and that he grows us and shows us how much we need him and how much he's willing to come alongside of us and to help us through these difficulties. And so uh, as we do this series in James called uh, How God Grows Us, we're going to, uh, to continue to look at what, what James shares with the, uh, the believers of his day. Remember, James was a pastor of the Jerusalem church. He's writing to the church that's scattered uh, throughout. They've been scattered because of persecution. They're not real sure uh, how to process that persecution and, and what that's supposed to be like. They may have thought like many do today that if you come to Jesus, all your problems will be gone. And they soon found out that that was not going to be the case. Uh, I think it's, it's appropriate to start today and just say this, that at, at the very most basic level of Christianity, we need to understand that Jesus didn't just save us to take us to heaven. But Jesus saved us to transform us into his image. Uh, The reason that Jesus came was not just to offer salvation, although that's a big part of why Jesus came, but part of that salvation is that we come to Jesus and our hearts are transformed and they are changed. And and so James wants to talk to us today about salvation and sanctification and, and how those things fit together and how God uses trials to be able to accomplish that. And so uh, like I said to you last week, so it's, it's often been said that, that either you're in the middle of a trial right now or you're coming out of a trial that you've just been through or you're headed into a trial that you may know nothing about. So when we do a series about trials, this is something that I hope that you can take some notes that you will file away. And if you're not in the middle of a crisis right now, you'll tuck this away so that when a trial comes, when a difficulty uh, is, is right there uh, in front of you, that you will know how to process that, how to work through that, that this can equip you for what may yet be ahead. So as we look at this, I want us to look at four things, and it's four things that James uh, wants believers to understand, and uh, I'm going to kind of mess you up today. If you're one of these OCD people that love to fill in every single blank, then I'm going to kind of mess with you just a little bit, because we're going to hit the main points first, and then we're going to come back and fill in those sub-points afterwards. So uh, just bear with me. Don't think I forgot what I'm doing, and, uh, and, and then you miss the rest of the sermon. I know some guys will do that where, you know, oh, God, he skipped a blank, and then, and then you miss the next four blanks. So let's don't do that. Let's just go through it together and, uh, and work on this uh, as we go through. The first thing that James wants believers to understand today is that you cannot separate salvation and sanctification. You cannot separate salvation and sanctification. Again, like I just said, Jesus didn't come just to save us, but he came to save us and to sanctify us. And and these two things are, 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 are the opposite side of the same coin, if you will. Salvation and sanctification were meant by God to go together. And so if we'll look in James chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and four, he says this, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he's talking to, to those who are believers. He's just set up in verse one that he's writing to those who are believers. He's saying to them, listen, you're going to have some trials in your life that are going to come. And those trials are going to serve a greater purpose. They're going to serve a purpose that God has ordained in your life. God didn't just save you to be his child. He didn't just save you to take you to heaven, but he saved you now to make you over in the image of Christ. And this this sanctification and salvation go hand in hand. And the way that sanctification occurs is as we walk through trials. Our greatest growth comes through our biggest struggles. We, we can coast through life and everything's going well. And, and, and those are not the moments that challenge our faith. Those are not the moments that stretch our faith. They're not the moments that really grow our faith. The moments that, that grow our faith are these trials. And so what James says here in this passage is, I want you to count it all joy when you encounter trials. Now, that is not our natural response, is it? But neither is it our natural response to walk up to somebody and say, hey, would you take a knife and cut me open? Anybody ever gone to a friend and say, hey, take a knife and just cut me open? No, that's not a natural response. But if I've got something wrong on the inside and you take that knife and you put it in the hand of a skilled surgeon, and if he can say to you, if you will let me cut on you, I can heal this. I can fix this problem. Then at that point, 
we submit to the knife. And, and, and it's not just that we're going through a trial and we go, yippee, I hit another trial, this is great. But when a trial is in the hands of God that uses that trial and guarantees us a result in the end if we will cooperate with him, then we can submit to that trial. We can submit to that test. We can go through that difficulty and say, Lord, I can go through this. I can even rejoice in this because I know that you've guaranteed me an outcome, that you are working to accomplish something in my life. And so that's what James is trying to say here. Not just get excited when you go through a trial, but, but, but be at peace in the middle of a trial because you know that God is testing your faith and that's going to produce steadfastness. And that steadfastness, when it has its full effect, in other words, once it's accomplished what God has set it out to accomplish, it will make you perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Now, when he says perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing, he doesn't mean moral perfection, that we will ever in this life achieve moral perfection where we never stumble or we never fall. That's not what James is saying. That's not the words that James uses here. He's saying you will be mature. You will be complete. There, there will be nothing missing. You'll have all the ingredients That's what he's trying to say. And so there's this process. God sends a trial into our lives. That trial produces steadfastness. Steadfastness is the ability to to bear up under a heavy load for a long distance. And you guys know that some of the trials that we face in this life are not once and done. It's not just here and ooh, it's over. Sometimes it lingers and we have to trust the Lord in the difficult times. We have to go through sometimes carrying a heavy load for a long distance. And that's what that word steadfast means the ability to bear up under a load for a a long distance for a long time so trials give us this strength to be able to hold up and to endure and as we endure and as that endurance produces its full effect then God is able to perfect us to mature us to complete us to where there's there's no big gaping holes in our character and that's what God's after When I look beyond the trial and see the results that God is wanting to accomplish, then when a trial comes my way, I can say, Lord, this is a part of the sanctification that goes along with the salvation that you gave to me. So, Lord, I may not like where I find myself right now. I may wish that that I could be out of this trial. I may wish that I could be at rest or be at, 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 at you know, in full health. But Lord, in the middle of this, I know because you're sovereign that you're doing something far greater than I can see. So even in the midst of my trial, I'm going to consider it all joy. Not joy that I'm in the trial, but joy that you're going to produce some good things uh, as a result of this trial. Again, Scripture says that Jesus said, the Bible says that, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross he wasn't excited about the cross remember in the garden the lord if there's any other way let's go there but if not your will be done and it was for the joy that was set before him jesus looking at that salvation that would be offered to us and the response that he would allow us to make to him that joy overshadowed the the suffering of the cross so We can't separate salvation from sanctification. The sanctification is the process. Salvation takes place uh, as as we come to Christ. But but, but the the process of sanctification is, is a process that takes the rest of our lives. But understand this, that the sanctification process always follows salvation. When you meet somebody who says, I've been saved but they're not participating in the sanctification process, they're mistaken. Those two things go together. You cannot separate one from the other. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. He says, For by grace have you been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one can boast. So there's the salvation. The salvation that comes by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's the salvation, but look what follows it in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's the sanctification. 
Salvation is followed by sanctification. We are saved that we might be transformed into the image of Christ. And so what, what the Bible is trying to remind us here is that, that just because you become a believer doesn't mean that you're going to be exempt from trials. In fact, as you become a believer, trials are going to be introduced into your life to, to reshape your character, to, to break the world's grip upon you. To, we listed 10 things last week that, that God uses trials to accomplish in our lives. And, and you're going to begin to see those things take place in your life because there's a process of sanctification that God wants to accomplish. We have salvation followed by sanctification and eventually glorification where we are with Jesus and, and there is no more sin. But right now, we're in that process of sanctification. So if you see somebody who says, well, I'm a believer in Christ, but, but, but God's not really doing anything in my life, and I'm not really concerned about anything else in my life, then I would question that salvation. And part of the reason that James writes this is to help us to look at our life and say, okay, if you say you're saved, show me where there's some sanctification. If you say that you know Jesus, then show me how that's playing out and how that's making a difference in your, not just your, your, your outward life, but in your inward attitudes and your heart and your trust and your faith. Is, are those things growing? Is, is God maturing those things in you? Because when you're saved, the sanctification process begins. And it's, it's something that we are, we are to see through. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him. So what's the proof that we are saved? What's the proof that we know him? If we keep his commandments, there's that sanctification process. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, God's word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. There's the sanctification process. That's part of the reason that, that God is doing this work inside of us. And so James, as he starts this book, he doesn't waste a lot of time. He doesn't do these long introductions. He just jumps straight in and says, listen, I want you guys that are scattered, that are trying to figure out this persecution, that have all these questions about why me, I want you to understand God is at work, even in the persecution, even in the trial, even in the tribulations that you face. Some of you guys are facing some, some tough stuff. Parents that are sick, spouses that are sick, loved ones that, that are going through trials and tribulations. And, and it just seems like that sometimes all those things begin to, to come together and we wonder, what in the world? Why is this happening to me? Some of you experience that the more you want to walk with Jesus, the tougher life gets. And you go, why is that? Because the more that we want to walk with Jesus, the more we're going to, to, to be, see our, our, our faith tested to be proven that it's stronger. God puts you through a trial to show you that he's doing a work in you. That you're not who you were a year ago or five years ago. That you hit a trial and you respond differently now than you would have responded years ago. And that's part of this sanctification process. So sanctification and salvation go hand in hand. The, the, same side, uh, the, the, same, the opposite sides of the same coin. And uh, so how do we know that we're saved? Well, there's a change of heart, a change of behavior, a different attitude. We have a, a desire within us to obey the commands of the Lord. If a person says, I'm saved, but there's no desire to follow Jesus, it's no desire to understand the Word of God, no desire to, to live a different life than we lived before we made that profession of faith, then Scripture says we need to look at that. Genuine salvation forever alters our heart. We have a new Lord, a new purpose, a new attitude, a new outlook. And when we have that, we're able to look beyond the trials, James says, and see what God is, is forming in us. And as we begin to understand what God's forming in us, then even in the middle of a trial that we would rather have skipped, we can say, Lord, thank you that through this trial you taught me to lean on you. Thank you, Lord, that through this trial you, you showed me that there's, a, there's, a, there's an attitude within me that didn't belong, that I needed to, to deal with. That there was some prejudice here, Lord, that I needed to, to get rid of in my life. That there was, there was some pride here that, that didn't belong. And, and, and you've humbled me through this trial to teach me that I really need you more than I realized that I needed you. So genuine salvation gives us this new attitude, this new outlook. And we can look beyond the trials and see the goal of, of becoming more and more like Jesus. 
I read this quote this week by an author named Warren Wiersbe, and he said this. He said, our values determine our evaluations. So what we value determines how we evaluate the stuff that happens in life. If we value comfort more than character, comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and the physical stuff of this world more than the spiritual, then we will never be able to count it all joy in the middle of trials. And if we live only for the present and we forget about the future, then trials will make us bitter and not better. It's a lot of truth to what Warren Wiersbe says there. That the, the attitude and what we value most is, is the thing that's going to change the way we evaluate what's going on in our life. If all I'm after is to be comfortable, then anything that rocks the boat's going to upset me. If I want to be in complete control, then anything that's out of my control upsets me. But if I realize, you know what, my number one goal in life is to be like Jesus. And if this trial can make me more like Jesus, then praise God for the trial. That's what the scripture is saying. That's what James is trying to say. We are saved to become more like Christ. And that character is forged. And it's proven to be true through the trials that we face. Therefore, James says, count it all joy when you face various trials. Let them do what they intend and let them have their full effect. And then you'll be made complete, mature, and and lacking in nothing. The second thing that James says, remember we'll come back and get the second little sub-point in a little while. But here's the second thing, the second main point that James says, is that you cannot separate wisdom and faith. So we can't separate salvation and sanctification, but neither can we separate wisdom and faith. Those two things are going to go together. And James is going to say in verses 5 through 8 that, listen, I know when you go through trials, there's going to be some questions. When you go through trials, there's this natural response to, to want to know what in the world is going on. So if you lack wisdom, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. In other words, if you're seeking wisdom, God's not going to shame you for that. If you seek wisdom, God's not going to scold you for coming and saying, Lord, I need wisdom. I need to understand this. But he will give it to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So here's what he's saying. You're going to go through some trials. And you may have some questions in your mind like, Lord, what is going on here? What are you trying to accomplish? And if you're in that position, which James would fully expect us to be, then we ask of God. We ask for wisdom. Now understand this. There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Sometimes we blur the lines. Knowledge is a grasp of the facts. Wisdom is knowing how to put those facts to work to accomplish a purpose. Okay? So you can have people who are super knowledgeable, but act very unwise. They can quote scripture, but they're not living it. They can sound religious, but their lifestyle is anything other than Christ-like. You ever met somebody that's got book smarts, but has no common sense? A lot of people like that in our world. They, they have this photographic memory, they can remember anything, but, but they, can't, they can't do life. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And, 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 and in the first part that we just looked at, James says, you know that the testing of your faith produces these outcomes. Now he says, let me show you how to put that into practice. Here's the wisdom. If you lack wisdom, Lord, how are you going to use these trials to make me more like Jesus? God is happy to show you how that fits together. He's happy to show you what he's trying to accomplish. And you cannot separate wisdom with faith, though. Faith is this obedient response to what God reveals. Okay? Faith is not just me believing it's all going to get better. Faith is an obedient response to what God reveals. So what is God revealing? If he lets me go through a trial, what's God revealing? There's something he still needs to work on in me. 
If he lets me go through a trial, there's something in my character, something in my life that he still wants to refine and make more like him. So he's revealing that by letting me go through a trial. Trials are not without a purpose. So if I'm going through a trial, there's something that God may want to do in me or through me or around me. So if he's revealing that because he's let me go through a trial, that there's still something that he wants to do in me, through me, or around me, I may need wisdom to go, okay, Lord, so what is it that you're wanting to do in me? What is it that you're wanting to do through me? What is it that you're wanting to do around me through this trial? And I may need understanding and wisdom to know what it is that he's trying to do so I can cooperate with him in the trial and we can produce the results that he wants to produce. It's not just enough to say, okay, I'm going through a trial, I'm going I'm I'm to grin and bear it, and I'm just going to get through this. You could do that and never accomplish God's will, right? So what he says here is I want to, to bring wisdom and, and, and faith together. And here's what the faith is. The faith says to God, let me just give you the, the difference, okay? Some people, when they go through a trial, want to shake their fist at God and go, why in the world are you letting this happen to me? I'm a good person who tries to live for you, who tries to honor you, and look what it got me. That's some people's response when they go through a trial. Why are you letting this happen to a good guy like me? That's not the question that James is, 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 is asking us or telling us that we can ask of God. That has no faith in it. That says, I don't believe that you're a good God, or I don't believe that if you are a good God that you're in control. Or I don't believe that if you are a good guy and you are in control, that, that you wouldn't let this happen to me. That, that, is, that is lacking of faith if you have that kind of a, a response to God. But, but what it is is that wisdom is trying to apply this knowledge that we have that God is good, that he is loving, that he is working all things together for our good if we will just love him and trust him. That's, that we have the knowledge, we can quote those scriptures. But when trials hit, we need to be reminded of how God wants to use these things for his glory. And so James is, is assuming that the trials <coughs> are going to produce some questions. The questions are not bad in themselves. But the question's got to flow from a heart of faith, James says. It's a heart that says, Lord, more than anything, even in this trial, I want to bring you glory. And I want to honor you. And I want when people watch me go through this trial to be able to see a, a glimpse of who Jesus is and how he would have handled this trial. So, Lord, I need you to help me understand how to do that. I'm going to need you to help strengthen me so that I can do that. I'm going to need you to walk hand in hand with me and help me to hold on to you through this thing, no matter what comes, so that when people watch me or when people look at my life, or even if it's just you, God, evaluating me, the result will be what you want it to be. So what he's saying here is, is that the faith, the, the, the questions need to come from a heart of faith with, with the desire to obediently obey him. Not that God owes you some kind of an answer, but that you're seeking to go, Lord, okay, what are, we, what are, you, what are you trying to do here? Show me why you allowed this and show me how I can use this now to bring you glory. So when we ask the why, we want to ask the why in order that we might bring him glory. Lord, why, why this? Why now? What are you wanting to accomplish? What are you wanting to do? How can I bring you glory? How do you want to grow me? What do you want to do through this that I can be a part of? That's the, the, the question of, of asking these questions, asking for this wisdom, but asking for it in faith. That, Lord, here, here's my commitment. If you'll show me, I want to be a part of that. Does that make sense? So look what James says now. Read that again. If, if any of you lacks this wisdom, ask God, and he will give it to you generously without reproach, without finding fault, without trying to shame you for asking. He wants you to know. But you need to ask in faith. Not doubting, not doubting God's character, not doubting God's goodness, not doubting God's ability to bring good through this. Not doubting what God's word has said that through the trials will come great results. Because, he says, the one who doubts 
is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Here one minute, and there another minute, and back and forth. And, 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 and one minute, okay, I'm going to trust you. The next minute, Lord, why in the world are you doing this? And back and forth, and back and forth. And he says he's a double-minded man. In other words, he is a man trying to serve two masters. I, I call you Lord, but I want to be in control. I call you my Savior, my Master, my God. I, I believe that you're sovereign, that you know it all, but Lord, I need to know every bit of this. You deserve, I deserve an answer from you. And he says that that double-minded man should not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now here's the deal. We can fool others around us into thinking that we have good intentions. But God really sees our heart. So when we go through a trial and those questions arise in our heart, they need to be asked out of a heart of faith that says, Lord, help me to understand what you're doing so that I can bring you glory, that you can work in me, you can work uh, through me, and you can work around me in this situation. And so, Lord, help me to understand. Help me to have faith. Help me to, to be able to trust that, that even through this, even if what I'm going through ends in death, that in that process you can grow me and you can be glorified through me. That's what, that's what James is, is encouraging his readers to do here because you can't separate wisdom from faith. If you ask for wisdom without faith, you're not going to be given it. But if you ask for wisdom in faith, God will grant that and he will not just give it to you sparingly, but he will give it to you generously because he wants you to be able to glorify him. So notice the contrast between those that have faith. Those who come in faith are given generously. Those who lack faith, what? Don't let them expect to get anything from the Lord. And look at the, the response of God. Look at how God responds differently to those who have faith and those who lack faith. Those who have faith, he gives generously. And those who lack faith, he, he, he doesn't. So this is going to require great trust in the Lord. Proverbs chapter 3 Verses 5, 6, and 7. Some of my favorite verses in, in the Proverbs. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Look at what He's saying. It's going to be things you don't understand. Okay, trust the Lord. There's going to be things you can't figure out. Okay, trust the Lord. There's going to be things that just don't make sense from a human perspective. Okay, trust the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. There's some things that we just won't figure out in this life. But you know what? I trust you, Lord, that your ways are far greater than my ways, that, that, that your plan is far superior to my plan. That your purpose for my life can go way beyond my own purposes for my life. And so I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to put my trust in you. And I'm not going to just seek to be wise in my own eyes. But I'm going to seek understanding from you. There's a third thing that James says that, uh, that we're going to need and that he wants to, to be able to do. In, in, and he wants us to understand. And that third thing is this. That you cannot separate grace and gratitude. When God pours out his grace in your life, there's going to be gratitude. When we understand, the more we understand about grace, the more gratitude that we have in our lives. You can't separate grace and gratitude. He gives an example here using two extremes that, 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 that yet share something in common. In, in verses 9 through 11, he says, Let the lowly brother, that's the brother that's in poverty, boast in his exaltation. And let the rich boast in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun, with its scorching heat, withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will be the rich man. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Here in James, the, the ninth, tenth, and eleventh verse, he's, he's drawing a contrast between two guys: the rich and the poor. The, the poor guy who says, man, I have nothing in this life to live for. I have nothing. I've, I've worked myself to death, and look what I have to show for it. I have absolutely nothing. But he meets Jesus by grace. And he says, I have everything to live for. 
This world may not give me anything, but you know what Jesus has stored up for me? Treasures beyond measure. The world may not give me the time of day, but God has sent me His only begotten Son. And the poor man understands his need, and he comes to Jesus and finds in Christ something that the world cannot offer him, and the world could never, ever promise him. The poor come out of this necessity to find something worth living for. But he also talks about the rich. And he spends a little more time talking about the rich here. He says, listen, the, the rich can, can take glory in, in, and boast in their humiliation. Why? Because they've realized something. The, the rich who have come to Jesus have realized something. That the, 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 like the flower of the grass, I'm going to pass away one day. And this wealth that I've got, it can't save my soul. The rich realize that they're like the flower of the grass. They'll pass away. They realize that the sun rises with its scorching heat. It withers the grass. The flower falls. And its beauty perishes. And so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What's James saying? That God has allowed, even in the midst of wealth, an emptiness that drives us back to say, there's got to be something more to life than just making money and leaving it behind. And that emptiness that the rich and the poor both feel drives them to the foot of the cross where they stand on equal terms before Christ. And here's the neat thing. They, they, they come, if, if you will, we could do it like this. They both come from different directions and they both meet at the foot of the cross. So he says, let the poor exalt in the fact that it doesn't, Jesus doesn't exclude him because he's poor. And let the rich be humbled that his wealth cannot influence Jesus to give him salvation because he's rich. They both have to come by grace. And they both get to rejoice. They both get to boast. Not in themselves, but in what Jesus offered to them. And this grace and this gratitude go hand in hand. So here's what he's trying to say. Listen, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, you're going to have some trials. And, and, and rich people, your, your money can't buy you out of that. It may God get you some better health care, but it can't fix what's really wrong. And poor person, listen, just because you're poor and you may not be able to afford health care, just because you're poor and you may not be able to afford the finest things of life, doesn't mean that God's not going to take care of you. And so they meet at the foot of the cross on level ground. And both can rejoice in the grace that comes to them. And they can both rejoice in the fact that, listen, the poor man can rejoice in the fact that, you know what, I was poor and my poverty led me to go, you know what, I've got to have somebody to help me. And that somebody is Jesus. And the rich man can say, you know what, I had everything like Solomon. I had everything this life had to offer me. And I realized it was all vanity apart from Jesus. And that vanity drove me to the foot of the cross. So he takes the two extremes and he says, it doesn't matter where you fit in between that. The trials of life, the emptiness that this world has to offer us can drive you to the foot of the cross and show you that what you really need most is this relationship with Jesus Christ. So both had reason to boast, even though their lives look completely different on the outside. Both lacked satisfaction. Both found an emptiness and a disappointment that, that they could not fill themselves. And these two different paths lead them to the foot of the cross. Jeremiah found this verse this week, and it's so powerful. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, it says this, Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. James just said, don't let the rich man boast in his riches. But here we are, the wise man in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. 
Paul says it again and again in his letters. Listen, if I'm going to boast in anything, I'm going to boast in my weakness because in my weakness, Christ is strong. So through our trials, we say, you know what? I have a reason to boast because my trial showed me that I'm not there yet. My trial shows me there's still something that God wants to, to do in my life. And by his grace, he will accomplish that. And as his grace is poured out, my gratitude will increase. And those grace and that gratitude go together. There's a fourth thing that James wants us to grab this morning. And that is this. You cannot separate reward with relationship. The reward from the relationship. You can't separate those two. The reward goes with the relationship. In verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There's a reward, but there's also a relationship. He talks about the crown of life here. In the literal Greek language, it reads the crown which is life. That's the reward. It's not, this, is, this is a victor's crown. That, that it, it's not a picture of a royalty crown. It's a picture of a victor's crown that's given at the end of a race for the guy that finishes the race. And he's saying here, this crown, which is life, is given to everyone who has stood the test and who has loved the Lord. There is a relationship that he is talking about here. This crown is not just for everybody. But it's for those who have loved the Lord, they've stood, their, they've stood through the test and through the trials, they've brought him glory, they've, 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 they've sought to, to, to just honor the Lord in all that they've done. And there is a reward called life, eternal life, for that one. You can't separate the reward, though, from the relationship. It's a reward, he says, which God has promised, he's guaranteed, to those who love him how do we know we've loved him how do we prove that we've loved him by counting it all joy when we go through various trials knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance that endurance produces all these other things and that we are made you know mature complete lacking in nothing that even when we lack that wisdom that we don't understand we come to him and we ask in faith so that we can then glorify him in this and all this piece this picture begins to fit together right here and he says, that's how you demonstrate your love for the Lord, is by trusting him in the trials. So the reward is reserved for the ones who have this authentic relationship with Jesus. Now, now hear me clear in this. The reward is not promised to the religious, but to those who've been made righteous by Christ. It's a big difference. He's not saying, okay, if you just go to church every week, do your time, check it off your list, then, then you'll be rewarded. That's not what he's saying. This is for those who love the Lord, who have a genuine love for the Lord. Matthew chapter 7, we've used this verse a lot. But man, it's a stark warning and reminder that it's a relationship with Jesus over the religion. Matthew 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the crown of life. But the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, that's the love of the Lord. The one whose heart is set on doing the will of God. Come trials, come tribulations, come hell, come high water. I'm going to try, Lord, my best to honor you and glorify you in the moment. The one who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? We were super religious. Everybody out there thought that we had it all together. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. We didn't have a relationship. That word knew is, is the same word that we would see back in, in the Old Testament, if you would, where it says that Adam knew Eve. That intimate knowledge of coming together in relationship. I never knew you. We don't have a relationship. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He's not after the religion. He's after the relationship. And that relationship brings reward. You don't have the relationship. You will not be given the reward. It goes together. And so we see in these four things that James is calling us to, that we are called to, to be different and that Jesus comes to make that change in our lives. So now what I want to do is go back real quick and I want to apply these four things and show you that we, we got the knowledge. Here's, here's the facts. Now let's go back and say, how do we take from knowledge 
into wisdom? How do we translate that? And we, how do we go from the facts into a Christ-like behavior? So we said the first point was that you couldn't separate salvation from sanctification. Therefore, here's the application. We rejoice in the fruit that he promises. Because I can't separate salvation and sanctification, I can, though, rejoice in the fruit that he promises. Because we are his, because the trials will produce in us this growth and and this perseverance, and the perseverance will bring about this this perfect, complete character lacking in nothing. So when trials come, I can rejoice knowing that he is growing me. Sanctification is going to bring a fruit that remains. So therefore, we can rejoice in the fruit that he promises. Even in the midst of the trial, I can say, Lord, I know that you're doing something for your glory, for my good. So I'm going to submit to that, and I'm going to let you do what you want to do. If we lose sight of what God is working to accomplish, we will forfeit our joy, and uh, and we'll forget that this salvation is just the beginning of the sanctification process, that they go together. So we look beyond the trial, and we see the transformation that God's wanting to bring. So you can't separate salvation from sanctification, but therefore what we do is we rejoice in the fruit that he he has promised he's going to bring. We also can't separate wisdom and faith, so therefore the second thing is that we ask that we might obey him. I'm not asking because I believe that God owes me an answer. I'm asking because more than anything, I want to obey you. And I want to be in the center of your will. So, Lord, I'm asking for you to help me to understand what you're trying to accomplish, what you want to do in me, what you want to do around me, what you're, what you're wanting to accomplish for your kingdom. Help me to understand that so that I might obey you. So, again, when we ask, we're not asking for a second opinion. Okay, Lord, I'm going through a trial, and I think I know why I'm here, but I'd like a second opinion. And I'll weigh out the two and decide which way I want to go. That's a double-minded man. Not asking for a second opinion. We're not asking because God owes us some kind of an answer. We are asking because we want to know what God desires to do and how that we can be a part of accomplishing his goal. So we ask in faith, ready to respond, committed to do what he would ask of us to do. The third thing that we would, the third way we would apply this is that we can't separate grace and gratitude. So therefore, we delight in the gift of salvation. We delight in the gift of salvation. Lord, I'm not sure all that you've done. I'm not sure how you're going to use this later in my life. But I'm going to be grateful in the moment for the salvation that you've given me and the knowledge that that you're you're at work here, that I'm yours and I'm in your hands. have you ever met people that say, man, I went through a terrible thing in my life, and at the moment I didn't understand it, and it was one of the most excruciating things that I've ever been through, most disappointing, hurtful things I've ever been through. But later on I realized, had I not gone through that, I wouldn't have been able to enjoy this. See, that person, their whole perspective changed. When they went through it, it was horrible. And then you look back on it years later, and you go, you know what, Lord, you used that to put me here. That happened in our lives, where God used some tough days to move us to the place that we could be here. And we look back now and go, you know what? I'm so thankful (laughs) that God let us go through the hurt in order to get us to where we are. It's a gift. It's a grace gift. And even though it hurts in the moment, it accomplishes greater things down the road. It's this person who sees the good fruit that comes out of the terrible situation. And in the middle of that, they can give gratitude to God. It's the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. We referenced it last week. But remember when Joseph was sold by his brothers and then sold out by Potiphar's wife and then forgotten by everybody and was left there in prison and he comes out and he finally meets his brothers again and and they're scared to death that he's going to have them executed. And he puts them at ease and he says, listen guys, you meant this for my harm. But God meant this for good. God sent me ahead of you to save a whole nation. Did I like the way you treated me? No. Do I see how God used that to get me here to be able to save his people? Absolutely. How was he able to move beyond the bitterness? 
the betrayal, the hurt. He knew all along that God was sovereign and that God had his hand on him and that God would use him. And so he could give thanks for the gift that God sent his way. The fourth thing is that we cannot separate the reward from the relationship. So what do we do? He says the reward is for those who stand. So therefore we stand in the strength that he provides. You're going to face some things in your life and you're going to think, I can't get through this. And you're right. You you probably can't. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I don't have that scripture on the screen today. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about the trials that we went through in Asia. We were in far above, our, our, in, in over our heads, far above our ability to endure. But God allowed us to go through those trials that he might show us that our strength was found in him and not in ourselves. Sometimes God lets you face some things that are overwhelming. And he says, I despair. Paul says, I even despaired of life. But God allowed that to happen to show me, to put my faith in him and not in myself. We go through trials. We go through temptations. And therefore, we stand in the strength that he provides. Your strength may not be enough. It probably won't be enough. But God will let you go through that to teach you that you have to depend upon him. We stand. And we stand secure in Christ. I read this this week and I thought it made a lot of sense. He said that, that, that our security in Christ rests not just in, 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 in us, but it rests in the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are secure because of the power of God to hold us. We are secure because of the promise and the prayers of Christ on our behalf. And we are secure because of the presence of the Holy Spirit deep within us. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all working together to hold us and to keep us secure in Christ. So let me wrap this up. Sanctification is the fruit of salvation. Wisdom is the fruit of faith. Gratitude is the fruit of grace. And the reward is the fruit of this relationship that we have with Christ. The purpose of the series that we're doing in James is not to cause you to doubt a sincere faith. Okay? If your faith in Jesus is sincere, the purpose of this is not to to get you to question that, to get you to, to doubt your salvation. That's not why James wrote. James wrote that these people might know the salvation that they have in Christ. The purpose of the series, the purpose of the book of James is to get us to examine the faith that we profess and make sure that it's real. To make sure that it is genuine, sincere. If it's real, James says, it's going to pass the test. If it's not real, then James wants you to know now. While there's still time to change, there's still time to repent, there's still time to enter into a relationship that produces sanctification. So let me ask you this as we close today. Is there fruit in your life that goes along with sanctification? Because if you are genuinely saved, the process of sanctification should have begun. Now, we're all going to be at different levels of sanctification, right? The the brand new believer is going to be at one level. But the person who says, I was saved 40 years ago, ought to be at a whole other level of sanctification. So is there fruit in keeping with sanctification? Is there fruit in, in, in keeping with this salvation? If, if I say that I'm saved, but there's never been any kind of inward change, outward change, any kind of transition going on in my attitude and in my heart, then, then I'm saying the sanctification is lacking. If sanctification's lacking, guess what? It's a good chance salvation is lacking. So is there fruit that you can point to that proves that you belong to Christ? Not just knowledge. Not just lip service, I know Jesus, but a genuine desire in your heart to please God in all things. Is that what drives you? Is there a desire inside of you just to look religious, or is there a desire inside of you to be righteous 
and to walk with God. There ought to be a genuine desire to, to, to please Him in all things. And only when that desire is present will we be able to count it all joy when we face various trials. Because I know that the trials are going to produce some stuff that God wants to produce. And so that, that's an indication of what I'm desiring. If what I desire, again, back to what, what Warren Rearsby said, if what I desire is just to be comfortable, then all this trial stuff's going to upset me. And it's going to, it's going to mess with me. But if my ultimate desire is to bring glory to God, then I say, Lord, come whatever may, help me to do that. Help me to honor you. Are you living for him? Or are you living with little thought of him? This morning, as we close, right, right here, if there's no fruit proving that there's been salvation, right here, right now, you and I could bow our heads before God and say, Lord, I, I'm not sure that I'm there. I'm not sure that, that this religious thing that I've had is, is, is what you're after in my life. I, I go throughout my week. I seldom think about you. I don't, I don't weigh my decisions based upon how can I glorify God the most. I'm, I'm just living for myself, and I'm just interested in being comfortable and happy. And, Lord, I don't know that I've got that relationship with you. You're, you're kind of the last thing on my mind. And this morning, we can begin that personal relationship with Jesus. We do that by admitting, first of all, that we're lost without him. Just like the rich and the poor alike. There's something missing. I'm lost without you. We do it by surrendering our whole life to him. Our past, all those mistakes that we've made, our present, the struggles that we're in right now, and our future, Lord, whatever may come, I surrender it all to you. And I confess my desire to live for your glory. I want to have that desire to want you. I want a desire burning in me that will glorify you. I I want to want you, Lord, but I need your help. And finally, we do so by trusting that he is the only way to heaven. There's no other way. Not my riches, not my, not my, not anything. It's, it's him or it's nothing. So this morning as we close, if you're not sure where you stand with Jesus this morning, I would encourage you to humble yourself before the Lord. Say, Lord, I realize that I'm lost without you, but I want to give everything that I have to you. And I want you to transform me to where my desires are in line with your desires. And then I want you to help me to live each moment for your glory and for your honor. As I lead us this morning in the closing prayer, here's what I'd like to ask of you. Two things. Number one, if you don't know Jesus, to bow your head and while I pray, would you talk to God as well and just say to God, God, I want you and I want this relationship with you. That's not just a, a religious thing, but I want this relationship with you. And the second thing I would ask of you is that if you do pray that prayer, You'd let the person next to you know, hey, today is my day where I'm getting it right with Jesus. And I want to walk with him. And I want you to let somebody here know that today. And I would love to know that as well. Because, listen, salvation is just the beginning of sanctification. And what we're all about here is to help you to grow in that relationship with Jesus. But we can't do that if if we don't know that you're beginning that walk with Jesus. So if you start that walk with Jesus today, let us know that you're doing that so that we can come alongside of you and encourage you and equip you and help you to grow in your walk with Jesus. So let's bow together and let's pray.